0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. This week we have, well, let's do this backwards. I'm Caitlin.
1: (laughs) I'm Cameron. I'm Ben.
0: (laughs) I'm Leah. So what I was about to say is that this week we have a special guest, Ben Grange, who is an agent at the L. Perkins Agency. We're going to talk a little bit about querying guidelines and word count and how to kind of meet expectations in the industry a little bit. It's something that I feel like I get questions about all the time, and I think
1: agents do, too.
0: Since we have Ben here, he can tell us everything we need to know about querying.
1: Yeah. Well, in the limited amount of time we have, I don't think I can get everything out there, but we can try.
0: I kind of wanted to talk about those submission guidelines, actually, because that's something that gets asked a lot. Tell us everything we need to know about submission guidelines. That's a much more limited thing.
1: So this is pretty much like the perfect thing for me to talk about right now. I'm currently on paternity leave and closed to queries until September. And yet I still get queries every day, which I delete because that's what my website says will happen. So follow the guidelines. Seriously, there's not really any reason to not follow the guidelines. This is something that comes up at almost every conference that I go to, panelists and writers, Always ask my advice about guidelines. And the only answer I really give is, you know, follow them. (laughs) We are in the information age. Everything is on the internet. And I promise you, agents are crystal clear about how they want your queries. If you can find an agent's email address, you can find their guidelines on how to submit to them.
2: So correct me if I'm wrong, but you're not just being petty and saying, do it exactly my way or I'm not talking to you. I think if you're going to take on an author, it's a business relationship, right? You want to know that this person you're working with in a business environment can follow basic instructions. Yeah.
1: It's not to say that if you mess up and you forget to do one thing that I ask for in your query, I'm going to just reject you offhand. But if you generally don't follow the guidelines and like say the guidelines are to submit your first five pages with your query and you don't do that. Like I'm not going to come to you and ask for your fir- first five pages especially if I'm not really that interested in your query, but who knows, maybe those first five pages would have, you know, intrigued me and I would have asked for more. So that's the that's the kind of thing you've got to really watch out for or like say agents don't want to have attachments sent on their queries and you attach something, that's like automatic rejection right there. So you just really need to watch out for the big things that agents want or don't want. In their queries.
0: And I think it's like Cameron said, it's not about like being rigid and stuff. It's about making it as easy as possible for an agent to look at your work. I mean, you want to do yourself all the favors that you can. And so if they have a specific system of going through queries, then their query guidelines are going to reflect that. And if you throw a wrench into the system, they'll probably because I mean, you guys get so many queries.
1: Yeah, just like now I'm not accepting queries for the next couple of months, but I still get a lot and it's mind boggling that people aren't even paying attention to what I'm looking for, what, or, or my life circumstances, you know, like what I'm capable of right now.
0: Well, and it also sends a message because I mean, agents are interested in authors who specifically want them as their agents. And it's not just like a blanket email that you send to everyone. You want to personalize, personalize queries. And so if you're sending, I mean, like in your situation, it's obvious they haven't even looked to yeah. see anything so
3: yeah. they right. sure they've done their research that you're the one they want because they've looked at your website
0: <laughs> okay well let's move on um some other things i wanted to talk about is word count based on genre so let's talk about that really quick i don't think we need to like go off and list all of the word counts that are for all of the different genres because it varies a whole lot based on whether you're writing adult or ya or middle grade and like within those genres, whether you're writing fantasy or like thrillers or whatever. So we don't need to go through and say every single one of those things because you can just look it up online. But why is it an issue even? It seems kind of, it's not arbitrary, but why does that matter to you as an agent, Ben?
1: Well, I mean, to start, one of the first things that I look at in every single query is the word count. That's like one of the main things that I ask for especially when, when writers ask me at conferences is what, what should I put at the front of my query? And I always tell them, you know, the basic information about your book, title, word count, genre, all of that stuff. Because if you if sent me a young adult epic fantasy that's 45,000 words, I will likely screen over the query and pass, mostly because that's about half the length that you want for a young adult epic fantasy. There's no way there's enough in there to call it an epic fantasy at 45,000 words, or even a YA at that point. Might be an epic work. picture book. Yeah, okay. <laughs> really epic. <laughs> epic picture book. Maybe <laughs>
0: Which is not a thing.
3: Uh,
1: Nobody writes that. Yeah. No,
3: yeah.
0: <laughs> a picture book.
2: Is there a bit of a warning flag there that if you don't know how long something is that you're that you're calling your own work, that maybe you don't know other genre expectations? Yeah.
1: I mean, if you don't know the basics of your genre, you probably don't read it, which is a huge concern. If you're not in that scene if you don't read it if you're not trying to be a part of that conversation that's already there and you just want to be published because you see those titles on the shelf and you want your name next to them that's that's a concern
0: I think that's like the best advice you could give an aspiring writer is to go read a bunch of books in your genre so you know both what's out there so you don't just write it again yeah because you know
1: a lot of first-time writers get excited about writing a book after they've fallen in love with a specific book for the first time. They want to be part of this community. They want to write a book too, but they haven't really avidly read what they're writing. And so they have this issue of copying what they just read and just doing exactly what they saw in that one book.
0: I 100% did that when I was in middle school.
1: I did that too. That was was the first time I wrote a book. That was what I did.
0: Well, and I think that can be
3: really useful to have a book that you idolize, not not so that you can copy it, but so you can do the opposite, kind of read the way they did things and then learn from their mistakes.
1: That's always a great way to practice your craft because that's been done for centuries and centuries of writing. I mean, Shakespeare did that. That's how he got good writing was, you know, rewriting the classics of his time.
3: And definitely get a feel for the market. Because it seems like people are comfortable with what they've enjoyed before. So if they really enjoyed this number one New York Times bestselling book, they're kind of looking for the same same length, same type of thing. And so you could have a really great story that's way out there in the ballpark of words, but people are sometimes hesitant
0: to take a risk on something like that. Yeah. Which I mean, that's not arbitrary either. The agenting side of of writing, that's the business side. And they're the one, I mean, you guys know that publishers aren't going to take something that's way too long, because it's going to be harder to yeah. sell to those readers, and it costs more to to produce. And I mean, there's a bunch of factors in there that agents are looking for.
1: Right, or if it's too short, like a, a publisher is not going to pick up an adult epic fantasy that's, you know, 30,000 words that's meant to be a novel, not a novella.
2: So maybe I'm going to drop a dollar in the Brandon Sanderson mention jar, but I know one of the things he mentioned, he always mentioned whenever he was talking about word count in class was that the Stormlight Archive series is like his baby. It's the thing he's always wanted to write, but he knew when he started out that that was not what he could lead with. Because it's like literally the second book in the series was the largest the printing press could physically print. No one's gonna, <laughs> no one's gonna take a brand new author and say let's print the biggest book that you can physically do. So instead, he went with so like his first book was Elantris, which is a much well, I mean, it's still a doorstopper, but it's considerably shorter than his other stuff, and it took a lot less creative risks. I want to say Elantris still has kind of that Sandersonian world building spin on it, but it's much more familiar to readers of fantasy than Stormlight Archive is with its, you know, crab monsters and that kind of thing.
0: It is a true secondary world. Yeah. So maybe we should talk about that. The reason I started this podcast, actually, with all of (laughs) y'all. I mean, some of you are newer, but is because when I was querying, I felt like there was a really, really big difference between getting feedback from a professional and getting feedback from my peers, because just because of where I was in the writing game, I didn't have any like published authors who were helping me. And I didn't have, you know, publishing professionals who know exactly what it is that they want. I mean, we started so that we could help querying authors who don't have those relationships get professional feedback. So if you find that your book is not going to fit within the conventions of the genre you write, how do you go about editing it? Because that's the first thing you're going to have to do before you query.
2: So my temptation with what I just said is if you're that's if you're if you're outside the bounds of the genre, I'd say put it aside, write something inside the bounds first and come back to it later.
1: That's actually really good
2: advice.
0: It's true. I feel like people get stuck on their first book and they're like I wrote this thing and they get really excited about it and then they can't put it down and edit it and work it to death and
1: get stuck so that is that is something I see all the time is people just getting stuck on a book that they've been working on I seriously talked to a person who was working on a book for 40 years that is a long time to focus on a single book that hasn't been published I mean I get it if you're if you're Tolkien and you get your book published and you spend the rest of your life working on stories in that world like okay you did it but you haven't been published yet and you're working on this book for 40 years. That's a long time.
2: Am I I wrong? I want to say, but like Tolkien published other stuff in the interim though. Like he worked on Lord of the Rings for like 30 years before he published it. But I think, didn't he have other smaller stuff that he published in the middle? Maybe. I don't know. eh.
0: I feel like that's, there are exceptions to the role like Tolkien and like Patrick Rothfuss, I'd probably put in that box actually, except that he got his first book published. And so I loved his books and I really wish he would just finish the last one. And he is probably editing it over and over and over again, but he's allowed to because he's famous.
1: And stuff. But yeah, same with same with George R. R. Martin. I mean, like the last Game of Thrones book, is that even, do we even know when that's coming out yet?
0: Nope. Well, let's talk about like, if your book is too short, what do you do? If we're going with the, you should edit it, method rather than to put it aside and write a new one? Or maybe what should you be thinking about when you write your new book? How do you flesh out a story that is not fleshed out enough?
3: I feel like in this age of Avengers, we sometimes get a little callous with how much people can endure and kind of a little desensitized to uh, to violence and action. But something that's always helped me flesh out my stories is when I consider the impact implications of things i already have going on so i have these certain plot events for instance the main character might get shot in the shoulder and then a few weeks later they recover they're back in the action or whatever but if you're looking to add more texture to the story it's good to consider the implications of that on all different fronts what if the bullet damaged nerves how's he going to deal with that later on or if it's his first time getting shot there's got to be some psychological trauma
0: with that as well I think that's true. Going deeper instead of wider, instead of adding more to your story, you look at what you have and say, what is it that I've missed here within the world or within the character? Like, what is it about their past or their future or their present or the things that they want or their stakes that I have not explored? And actually, I think that they're like, based on your genre, you want, I mean, we just talked about this, there's significantly different word count expectations for genres. Books that I see is quite similar, but being in totally different genres are The Hunger Games and Red Rising. Mm. Which is essentially the same story. It's teenagers being thrown into a situation where they all have to kill each other. The Hunger Games is definitely YA dystopia. And Red Rising, it's also on Mars. So, you know, it's science fiction. But it's definitely an adult book because of the time that the Brown spends developing the characters and how much time he puts into The like the depth of the characters and the relationships. It's definitely much more fleshed out as far as how the characters relate to one another and where they come from and where they're going. In the Hunger Games, Katniss is a really fleshed out character, and we care about like Peeta and Gale. But like I I I, I know I I like them. I liked these books. I I
2: I like them.
0: Yeah, they're a very quick read. That does it dwells a whole lot more on plot than on building up characters I think. For example, Rue is to make you hate all of the other people who are trying to kill her. I mean, you sympathize with Rue and she's a foil for all of the really mean characters, but she doesn't have a whole lot beyond that. Whereas in Red Rising, all of the characters that come on screen have like really in-depth backgrounds and political implications and
2: stuff. I have to think about it. I don't I'm not necessarily going to disagree with you. I just don't know if I feel like the Red Rising series is denser than the Hunger Games if so much as it's just longer <laughs> like like there's because the series is so much longer it feels like there's more time for characters to come back and get more limelight
0: that's exactly what we're talking about though he gives space for all of the characters to have interactions outside of the main plot if that makes sense
2: okay that's fair that's fair
1: I don't necessarily think that that's a flaw of Hunger Games though
0: they're catering to different audiences completely
1: absolutely yeah that's exactly what a young adult audience would want to see in a book. And I mean, it was very apparent that that's what a young adult audience wanted to see in a book. And lots of the- adults too, right? Yeah, and also adults.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think you're dealing with attention span. Like, And I don't think that because you like the Hunger Games, you can't like Red Rising or whatever. Like, Genres aren't exclusive, but they're definitely meant for different styles of readers and and attract different types of readers. People who like The Hunger Games might not like Red Rising, even though it's a very similar type of story because it's longer. Personally,
1: I I think really though, if a book is too short, if we're going to come back to like fleshing out a story that you want to write or that you've written that falls short of the traditional or ballpark word count, you're facing a lot of different issues in here. It's not just one fix that will give you whatever you want. But I think the main thing that I would look for in a book like that is probably character development. There's probably a lack of development in the character taking place. Because if you just look at any book, the plot, no matter if it's character driven or plot driven, but the plot is a direct result of multiple characters interacting with each other and working towards their own specific goals. And if the characters aren't developing, it might be that they're getting what they want without trying too hard. So I don't know, throw in some conflict, throw in some bad guys, throw in some opposition, make the characters work, put them in sticky situations and have them work themselves out. Even if it's just to practice getting a longer work or or fleshing out a story, even if it doesn't work at all, just practice that. Practice making your book work and your characters develop and your plot to just unfold by itself without plotting every single step that's going to take place in the book
0: okay and then as far as cutting things if your story is too long this is where i should probably sit and listen to other people talk because i have this problem
1: (laughs) well personally i like when i'm working with my authors and I, i guess the the topic that we wanted to talk about was authors editing themselves and please do this like even if you have an agent edit yourself before you send your work to your agent but before you try to get an agent. These are the things that I like to do with my clients. So maybe they might help you just working by yourself. But usually, I do several rounds with my clients. And uh, we go through a lot of different things focusing on specific aspects of the novel every draft we do. So first, I'll tell them to, you know, really focus in on their characters. And they need to go in and know every character. And you'll find that if you can flush out your main character and the secondary characters and the minor characters, it'll flow a lot better. And you'll be able to just take out a lot of the garbage writing that you had when you know who the characters are. So that's step one that we do is, is characterization throughout the whole novel and will really help you trim down. Even though that sounds like you're adding more by developing the characters, you're really honing in and figuring out who they are. And you can take out a lot of the unnecessary stuff that's there already
0: characters unless you're like a really good outliner and and can make it work a lot of times are discovery written and with discovery writing you end up cutting a lot yeah do you have to carve it down to the center and then make it consistent and
1: and the same thing with discovery writing is pacing and plot structure because you've discovery written and so you've probably done just a lot of explorative writing so pacing is really key it's it's paramount And it doesn't matter if you've got great characters or a great story or whatever. It doesn't really amount to anything if it takes us way too long to get to all of that stuff because your book just weaves in and out. So cutting things, even though it hurts sometimes because you loved it and you went on this adventure, if it doesn't really help, if it doesn't move the book forward, chances are that it should be cut.
0: That's exactly what people are talking about when they say kill your darlings. They don't actually mean take all the things that you like out of the book and then get rid of them. (laughs) They mean go through and really look at your story and see what is important and what is just on the side. And then based on how much space you have in the genre you're writing, take out all of that side stuff, even if it's stuff you like, and even if it's good writing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But sometimes I think editing yourself means adding things into the book too. So when you're cutting, be sure to make sure that the things that are supposed to be there are there like setting and sense of place. If you're cutting a whole bunch of things throughout your book, but you haven't really taken time to do a sense of place revision, that's going to fall short. Uh, Setting, sense of place, world building, all of these things are super important to immersing your reader in the world of your story. And sometimes after you've gone and slashed everything, adding those things back in or adding them in at all is incredibly important.
0: Based on our time, we probably need to move on. Is there anything extra special that we wanted to add to this portion of the podcast?
1: I think I want to say one more thing because it's super important. it will help your writing so much is that when you're done with your book, chances are you can cut even more by just going through and looking at every single sentence in your book and taking out one word that doesn't need to be there. Because if you've got like two to three, five thousand sentences in your story, that's a lot of words that can be cut and get your book a lot tighter and neater and cleaner.
0: I yes, I can identify with that, definitely. <laughs> Anyway, we should probably move on to the second part of the podcast where we critique a first chapter. Just so you know, if you'd like to check out the text of the submission as you listen, it is currently on our website for you to look at with all of our comments. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can submit all of our submission guidelines, which you should follow, are on our website, which is litnation. So the submission we talked about this week is about a girl who moved to Budapest to do some genealogy. She wants to find out about her family history and she can see ghosts. She has a special ability to see them and talk to them and has a relationship with her past family members because she's been able to talk to them. And as she gets into her apartment, she sees a ghost that she doesn't recognize who seems much less interested in being nice to her. So things that we
2: like. I mean, so speaking of the first sentence, I have to confess myself a fan. Uh, It reads, a ghost lingered near the entryway of my new Budapest apartment. I feel like there's a lot of information there. It has the word ghost, which for me is always a plus. So we know where we are. We're in Budapest. And we also know whoever this is, they're old enough to have an apartment. So I think that's And that
1: the apartment is new. We're probably getting a hint that she just moved there maybe.
0: I'm stealing Cameron's thing that he wrote down because I had it written down too. I really love synesthesia type details where you associate colors with smells or with other images or other, you mix senses. And there's a really great line that says there's a delicious deep, oh, it wasn't you? It was Aaliyah. You saw
2: my color. I'm purple this week.
0: You're purple this week. Can you tell we color code our outline? Okay. So Aaliyah said, so it's good that I'm saying this because she's not here anymore. Delicious deep red scent of someone cooking goulash, which I feel like it hits me in a bunch of different places and I know exactly what they're talking about. There is a lot of really great setting. And I also really, Ilya said this, but I really liked the twist at the end, which we are going to spoil for you because it's just the first chapter where we have her trying to talk to this ghost and the ghost telling her that she, the main character herself is a ghost. And then the ghost exercises her, which I think is great.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the author did a great job leaving the first chapter on a cliffhanger because We don't really know exactly what has happened here. We're left kind of in the dark. Well, we don't really know if the main character is a ghost or we don't know if the ghost she saw was human. We don't really have any answers right now to move the plot forward. And so, I mean, it's an instant page turn right there. So I think the author did a pretty good job at the end of
2: the chapter.
0: It's the good kind of questions, not the kind of questions that mm-hmm. make you want to close the book.
2: Yeah, I thought the author did a really good job sprinkling details about the character through the way they describe things. The fact that she opens up with being able to describe the ghost dress as from a Renaissance festival, or uh, I'm I'm losing other details, but like the fact that she speaks some Hungarian is that by the time it mentions that she's doing like an anthropology or history type major, I'm like, well, of course she is. We've already been shown through the way she observes the historicalness of everything going on. That this is someone who's educated.
1: And the writing itself is pretty polished. There are a couple minor errors, but the voices developed. The writing was skillful.
2: I really like where the story starts. So not just not just like the opening sentence in itself, but the whole the whole setup of her moving from what had been her life to straight in the moment of arriving where she's going to live now. I think it provides a really great stage for showing who she was and where she, and who she's hoping to be. I think that mm-hmm. combination is, is great for an opening scene.
0: So let's move on to things that might need a second look. I feel like at the beginning, there's a whole lot of interiority. There's a whole lot of thinking about the past and why she's there, which you do need some of because we need context for how the story is starting and why the character is where she is and why she's doing what she's doing. But there was just a lot and it seemed very heavy to me.
2: I'll agree that, I, I mean, I, I noticed that there was a little more, there was enough that I noticed, but I was okay with it.
1: I didn't really notice all that much, so.
0: Okay. I'm alone. I must not <laughs> read this genre enough. I also felt like, and you guys can disagree with me if you want, that I really liked a lot of the sensory details that were added but I felt like that they were presented in a way that made me think I needed to remember all of them. They're all given in like individual sentences. For example, when she first sees this ghost in her room, or I guess it's the second time she sees the ghost in her room. She says the floor polish smelled of lemons. And then she introduces herself. She says, my name is Maggie. Who are you? And the ghost stumbles away from her, holding up a hand, a bracelet glinted from her wrist, blue and silver. So each of those details that are given are in like their own sentence which made me think that the bracelet's going to be really important, which it might be. So maybe that's just reader response. I'm like, I need to remember this. But the lemon scented polish, I'm guessing, isn't important. And then there are a bunch of those. There's like a flock of birds that flies away. And it, it just doesn't seem connected to the narrative. It feels almost like I'm watching a movie where there's stuff happening in the background that doesn't really matter. But because I'm reading a book and it's being filtered through the point of view of the main character, I feel like there should be a reason for it for some reason. What did you guys think?
1: I think a lot of that can be toned down through a revision of sense of place. Like I just mentioned earlier that you probably want to add sense of place. There are instances where you have too much of it and you should cut the things that aren't really helping us get a sense for the scene. So like the floor polish smelled of lemons, this a really random thing to have in kind of this tense moment, unless the floor polish smelling of lemons is going to be like crucial to her not being exercised by this ghost or something in the next chapter. I don't know.
2: So even if it's crucial, though, you want there to be a reason for her to notice it in the moment.
1: Right, yeah. You're calling attention to the floor when this ghost is about to do something crazy to her, and it's it's kind of a mixed... It's distracted. ...action, yeah, it, yeah.
0: I actually think, along with that, that there in the details that are given, there's a lot of... Like I mentioned at the beginning, there's a lot of interiority. There's a lot of her like thinking about her past and stuff, but it's double stated a lot of times. And actually I'll post my notes. And so you can see places where I felt like things were stated more than once. And then sometimes I felt like it was inconsistent. Like she mentions that her uh, mother had a gift as well. She could hear ghosts. She couldn't see them. And that that had gotten her killed, which I was like, oh, that's really super interesting. And I want to know more about it. And then she kind of like just moves on. She's just like super happy about everything. The details about her dad and her grandfather not wanting to talk about ghosts because of what had happened to her mom. At first, she says, I'm here for the ghosts. I'm here in Budapest because I'm really excited to connect with my family and see ghosts. I'm hoping that they'll come back. And then later on, when she meets this less nice ghost, she's like, I guess I don't mind the ghosts. And so I just felt like her um, her thoughts were a little bit inconsistent about some things.
1: I did want a little bit more of a grounding in her gift or ability to see ghosts and why it was important to her character and her family. There was there wasn't really enough there for me to latch on to and get excited about, get connected to. And I know it's just the first chapter and you don't need to give me every single detail about this paranormal system that you have made for your book, but there was just not enough. And I think like sentences like when you're explaining the ghost to the reader for the first time and you've got a sentence that says something like, especially because the driver didn't acknowledge her referring to the ghost, you're taking time to say that the, main character can confirm this is a ghost because the cab driver didn't acknowledge that she was there i mean that's not really a good enough i guess sentence for me to 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 get to know this this character or to, to get to know this world i mean people don't acknowledge other people all the time it doesn't make them ghosts so instead you could cut that out and maybe give us a little bit more about who this character is or this setting and and like Maybe imagine if you use like a list or something here to tell the reader how she knows this is a ghost or something. Give me a bit of personality here.
0: There was something else about the ghost that I was a little bit confused about. She, so she first sees this ghost out on the landing and she's very specific about saying the ghost is not frightened
1: or and the ghost is kind of just ambivalent at the beginning. It's just mm-hmm. there.
0: And then when the ghost appears in her actual apartment, there's a really a big change. The ghost is scared. The ghost like screams her out of her apartment. And that seems like a really big change. And the main character doesn't seem to notice that the change occurred. And so I was confused about like whether I had misread the beginning or, like,
2: I don't know. It just didn't seem consistent. I mean, that's one thing that I was game to keep reading and see.
1: Well, I kind of had the same sense, too, though, because the ghost switch was, like, super quick, and we didn't know what triggered it, obviously, because this is from the point of view of the main character. But if you keep it that way, I want to cue us in as to why it was like that.
0: I'd be okay with the switch. Like, I would even be okay with not knowing what caused the switch, as long as the main character is like, oh my gosh, she
1: switched. Yeah, that's true. Just like acknowledging it, hanging a lantern on the fact that it's not random. I was just going to say there were a couple of weird things in the prose itself. Like there were some typos on the first page, which is a big red flag for me as, a, as an agent. If I see a bunch of typos, I'm just going to pass on it because the author obviously didn't go over the first page that they are sending specifically to me. But there are other things that make me feel like the author might be trying a little bit too hard to come up with metaphors or similes or comparisons, like specifically states at one point, hope flickered under my tongue. And I'm not exactly sure what that means. Like, I've never felt hope under my tongue before. Like that one too. Don't try so hard that things don't make sense. And if you notice something in your writing that doesn't make sense, you should probably just take it out. I don't know, just one last thing. Like, I know this isn't a huge deal, but does this really need to be titled Raven King? Because the Raven King is the title of a very popular number one New York Times bestseller, so... That's a good research thing. Yeah, like... <laughs> maybe, maybe don't submit this with the title of Raven King. Um, but titles are titles are important to me. Like as an agent, I'm trying to sell a product to a producer. That's basically what we're doing. We're selling a book to a publisher as a product that they can sell to consumers. And the title of a, of that product is, you know, the, what people are going to see. And if it, if it's not, thought through by the author before it comes across my desk. I think it doesn't have to be the final title, but I, I really want you to put some effort into that title. Like what does this title mean to you? Why is this title important to the book? And maybe not use the title of a New York Times bestseller.
2: I feel like it's probably a good idea in general. At least this is something I try to remember to do is Google any and all proper nouns that you use in your book and make sure there's not some association you're not aware of
1: yeah i do that a lot too is is especially with names of characters like just is there are there other books out there that have the same main character as the name that i'm using right now and if so what connection do they have to the genre or the audience or whatever
2: yeah you don't want to accidentally submit a a vampire romance with the main character's name of bella it's not going to fly
1: yep
0: originally twilight was named
1: forks
2: yeah,
1: and that probably would not have sold as well.
0: <laughs> so we've been really business side heavy today. I just want to say that when you write your first draft, make it exactly how you want, and then you put it aside for a while, and then you go back and look at it from this perspective. So this is the revision side where you need to be thinking about marketing and about, or not marketing, but about selling your book as a product. So that doesn't start at the beginning, though. If you're just drafting it for the first time, don't worry about this stuff yet.
2: Agreed. I also feel like titles are a lot like first chapters and that most I'm likely what you that? think it should be titled is going to be different by the time you finish yeah. the book. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm.
0: We should probably get things wrapped up here. So if we don't have any other feedback, I'm just going to conclude. Thank you so much for coming on, Ben. We should be seeing more of Ben over the next couple of months. Our next episode in two weeks, we are going to actually have a bunch of special guests. We're talking about different publishing models. So we'll have a group of authors who have been published in different areas of the industry. We'll have somebody who's with Amazon's traditional publishing company. We'll have somebody who's self-published, somebody who's with a smaller publishing group, and then someone with a big five publisher. And we're just going to talk about what the differences are and what you can expect, like what kind of work you end up putting into it and how the how they all differ. And so also, if you would like a ton of published authors to critique your first chapter, this is a good week to submit. And I will put all of the names and works of, their, of these authors on our announcement tomorrow. I also wanted to remind you that this podcast is both a video and a podcast. So you can either watch us or you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you use. Please remember to subscribe so you don't miss any of our shows. If you want to talk to us, you can find us on Twitter at Lit Service or on Facebook and Instagram as at Lit Service Podcast. And I think that's it. So for Lit Service, thanks for listening and we will see you in two weeks.